Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, episode 12, Mobile Home Parks. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. And today our guest, Ryan Neris, shares his experience in buying and managing 1,200 mobile home pads. Here it is. All right, I want to thank uh, Ryan Neris for joining us this morning. Thank you for being here. Can you give our listeners a little background on who you are and what you're doing? Yeah. So first off, Thank you guys for having me. I tried earlier to pay y'all a compliment and you deflected in a very <laughs> humble way. So I'll put your feet to the fire with all the listeners. You guys are rock stars and I am honored to be here. Thank so, you. Thank you. Yeah, I am a 32-year-old, as of this recording, 32-year-old millennial who's just fed up with the kind of BS that I feel like I was fed my entire life. Go to school, study hard, get into a good college and you know, you'll have a job waiting for you and you'll make tons of money and, and live a great life. And to be fair, I did graduate undergrad in 09. So that was kind of not a good time to graduate. <laughs> but then the next level of that is go to get your master's degree and then you'll have a 100K a year job just waiting for you when you graduate. And so I did that. And turns out that too was a lie. And I hustled my tail off to find a job and it did not pay a hundred. It paid kind of close to it. But then, you know, you get there and you feel stuck at a job. And and it was just brutal for me because I felt stuck in my job after I graduated undergrad. And then I went to get a master's degree and it was the same thing. It was if I get promoted, it's more hours for a little bit more pay and a ton more stress. And I don't get to see my kids and it just up didn't look good and out didn't seem like an option either because at least what your MBA gives you the ability to do is like in basketball, you do a pivot. What am I going to do? Go get another degree and go get even more student loan debt? Like forget it, you know? So what I, I was just fed up and I realized that I am meant to be an entrepreneur. I'm meant to not have a boss. I'm meant to do it on my own. So over the course of almost a decade, I just picked up any book I could read I talked to anyone from a janitor level all the way up to the CEO level and everything in between. I spent hours trying to answer the question, who am I? What do I like? And, and then I just realized at some point in time, I just need to make a sacrifice. And so that all culminated in discovering mobile home parks. Four years ago, I looked at over 100 businesses to buy and actively scale. And mobile home parks fit my skill set and my what I want to do with charity in my life. And, and it just checked all the boxes, so to speak. Flash forward four years later, I am, fingers crossed, closing on my 10th mobile home park next week. It'll be a little over 1,200 total pads. And I am a full-time real estate entrepreneur millennial. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's that a, went really fast. That's a From good... MBA to 1,200 pads. Well, it was a wild ride. And I guess we'll talk about it, that today. But a lot of luck, a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice. And yeah. 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 The thing that I love about your story is, and I know you've probably told it a hundred times, but the, the grit that you'll put into this deal is you'll actually, well, I don't know, you're probably not doing it anymore, but when you first got into this deal, you were living in the mobile home parks yeah. themselves. Yes. So what I realized is if you're making plus or minus $80,000 a year, nice middle-class home wife who wants a family just like I, I did at the time. It, it's really hard to get comfortable in that lifestyle and then quit. <laughs> so what I realized is that step one, I need to prove that this business works. And as soon as I can prove that this business works, step two is plan to exit. 
And so it took three acquisitions to be able to go full time. And it, and it wasn't just like, oh, great, I get to continue to live in my single family home and live this comfortable lifestyle. It was, I'm going to now go from plus or minus 80 and change, maybe a little bit more with benefits, 401k to I am literally only paying myself 35000 a year. And that does not include my health insurance. So in other words, I'm going to take a massive haircut on my cash flow. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to do things like live in a mobile home for an extended period of time. So I lived in a mobile home every other week for 14 months. Reason being is I realized no one wants to operate these. They would rather buy them and outsource that. So I could have a competitive advantage if I am the one willing to mm. hear the complaints firsthand and deal with the evictions, be in eviction court myself. And I will learn more than any training course will ever teach me by being the one on the front lines. And not only that, I can pay myself a, a livable salary and just anything above that I make, I can refunnel that directly into the business because I didn't have any money to start off. I had more student loan debt than I had actual cash that I could invest in in acquisitions. So I ha I didn't have a choice. I had to use other people's money. I had to make major sacrifices. And it was the best thing for me because I learned about other people's money, OPM, and I learned about how my business works from the front lines. And think about it like this. What does a mobile home feel like in the middle of the night in a thick, dense, powerful thunderstorm? What is it like when your air conditioning heating goes out in the middle of the winter and you have paper thin insulation? <laughs> Well, I'll yeah. tell you what that's like. You move your blow up mattress to the middle of the mobile home because that's the warmest spot. You know, what is it like at 4th of July when the kids are running around with little bottle rockets and stuff shooting them at your house? When little Miss Janice comes in, who's 80 years old, to complain the next day, you feel her pain and you don't just brush her off like, okay, I'll do something about it. No, you're like, I was there too. I couldn't sleep either. And that just taught me things that are completely invaluable. And what I say on my podcast is some game-changing knowledge that I got from that beyond just how do I scale a business and how do I, un, you know, how do I, how do I look at this business fundamentally? Because that's what it is. It's a leverage buyout. You're buying a business. Is that now my underwriting is so much better because it's garbage in, garbage out, right? You're, an Excel spreadsheet will only tell you what you put in it. If your assumptions are better because you've lived it, you will not miss properties right in front of your face that everyone else isn't taking a look at because X, Y, or Z is wrong with it or they're missing it. So that's kind of who I am, what I was willing to sacrifice to get it. And uh, to, if you were to tell me four years ago, I'd be full time doing this, working from home and still being on my properties all the time, I would have said that's unimaginable. And so I'll kind of stick this landing with, I think Bill Gates said this, you, you overestimate what you can do in a year and you underestimate what you can do in 10. And that is absolutely by far the case because step one, Ian and I, my business partner, Ian and I, what we did was we made a business plan. Like what is our vision, our goal? What do we want in our personal lives, our career lives? And I, I still have that document saved. And what we thought we could do in our first year, we weren't even close. But by year five, we're, and we're not even at year five yet, we're far ahead of where we thought we could be, which is totally awesome. So I will reiterate that quote. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that speaks to the scalability of it, which is what you wanted. Can you walk us through what you talked about other people's money? Can you talk, 
walk us through that first deal and how you made it possible? Sure. So the first deal, I, I effectively had no money to invest. It was a 1.525 mil acquisition. So, and worse, our investors were out of California. We went to 40 banks <laughs> and got 40 rejections. Wow. It was wow. a great property too, from a debt coverage ratio standpoint, no one wanted to touch it because the, the piece that we didn't understand at the time was number one, it didn't matter that I had an MBA. It didn't matter that we had a great concept and we're partnering with folks who had done, I think over 10 deals at the time. So experienced operators, the thing was they were out of California and they either weren't willing to sign recourse debt or they were willing to, but since they were so far out of state, the local banks were like, dude, forget it. Yeah. So we didn't have any experience. What are they going to come after my Honda fit? <laughs> if we default, forget about it. Right. So we got 40 rejections and that was the best thing for us because it just reinforced the grit and that this isn't going to be easy. And by our second deal, we had, we only reached out to 15 banks. So we got two to say yes, which is great. So the difference between owning zero properties and one monumental. Yeah. So I'll encourage, I know there's a little bit of a tangent, but all the listeners who haven't done it yet, go buy one, even if it's just a single or a walk to use baseball terms, as long as you don't shoot yourself to the point where you can't do business anymore, do it. Don't wait for a home run because you'll speak so much more confidently to brokers and lenders and, and just everybody, investors, uh, after you do that first deal. But anyway, getting back to your, your initial question, what we did is we found the deal because we realized there's three aspects to a deal. Finding a willing seller, finding the money, and doing the operations. We could find a willing seller. And we did. We could also do the operations. However, since we had never, we had only studied it, we never actually done it. We needed to lean on someone who had bought these before and operated them before. So we were willing to be the boots on the ground. The thing we didn't have is the money. So what we did was we went, we found a deal. We brought these investors in. We said, can we work out a way that we do some operations and you cut us in on a finder's fee? We need to cash a significant portion of that out and then we'll leave a, a smidge of that in. And that's exactly what we did. So we only ended up owning, I think maybe 3% of that deal, but we got a nice chunk of change out of that, which we then went and reinvested in our second one. So really the first one was kind of a training wheels type deal to give us clout, to let us speak with confidence. Number two was really our number one. Okay. If that makes sense. And you were, uh, were you hundred percent of the next one? No. So the second one was, uh, I think, a hundred twenty-five or a hundred fifty thousand dollar capital raise, which is nothing. But for a, literally, I was, I think, twenty-nine or thirty at the time. I had no money. I remember I actually pulled up the application that we did with Integra Bank for that second one, and I saw my personal financial statement from October sixteenth, twenty sixteen, and I looked at that. It wasn't even a hundred thousand dollars. It was nothing. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of smiled. And when I looked at that, because I know I'm a multiplier from that three years later, which is exciting. But at the time, I still didn't have that much money. And not only that, we ran into the same issue of you have to sign recourse for this loan because the loan amount is sub a million dollars. And really, a lot of debt is, is they won't even talk non-recourse options, sub two million. So the acquisition was 500,000, capital raised plus or minus 125, recourse debt. I can't sign recourse debt. My net worth isn't even a hundred grand and the loan's closer to 400. So we had, I had no choice but to bring on an investor because we didn't have the capital and also for to hold the note. 
the collateral aspect of the note. Did you use the same investors? No, totally different guy. Got it. How, how is that process? I mean, you make it sound easy and you're got a great personality. So Thank some you. of it is, some of it is probably easy for you, but how was it finding the investors? Like what, what channels did you go through to, to make that happen? Well, first and foremost, I'm flattered. If my wife ends up listening to this, she will <laughs> verbally laugh out loud at hearing that and roll her eyes. So <laughs> I'm flattered. It's tough. I would like to say I, if I am making this sound easy, I am doing this a complete disservice. So I was a car salesman for four years. Right after I, sorry, like I said, I graduated undergrad in, in 09 with a degree in psychology, minor in statistics, thinking, dude, I'm going to go sell. This is what I want to do. I'm jacked up. And to have graduated from Wake Forest, good school, and to be basically faced with no sales jobs at the time because they only wanted folks with experience, I was like, I can't sit back and, and wait for someone to take a chance on me. I'm going to go out and get sales experience. So that alone was humbling. And then I went and sold cars for four years. I'd like to think I did a pretty good job, but my lifetime closing percentage was still less than half. So in other words, every person you basically more than every other person you talk to is not going to buy from you. And sometimes it's brutal. Like, a family friend I'll buy from the same Honda store across the street, which was that we could talk about that for hours. But <laughs> it was humbling. And what it taught me is you need to have thick skin. Number one, number two, just because someone doesn't call you back or someone is rude to you or worse, someone's like, oh, I'm definitely interested. And then when it comes time to write the check, they can't be found. So that experience really thickened my skin. So when it came time to raise capital, when I would have those conversations with those folks, and Ian, my business partner, had never, he's a natural salesman, but he hadn't had that experience yet. So we would go and pitch a, an investor, and he'd be like, that went really well. And I would go, no, that didn't. <laughs> because I know what it sounds like when someone's like, definitely interested, definitely call me. And I'm like, dude, we'll see what happens. When. Yeah, yeah, that is not a good sign. When everybody's telling you, yes, yes, yes. Yes, send me the info. It's yeah. not, you know, it's funny uh, for those listening in that's, that have never actually raised capital before. It's, it's, it will seem paradoxical. But when they start asking you really tough questions, it's uh, that's when you know you're onto something. Yep. When they start asking you, okay, well, what happens if blah? That yep. sounds really scary and really dangerous. That's when you know. When the, when, that means they're paying attention. When you start hitting yellow lights, that's when you know you're onto something. Because if it's all green lights, there's a reason for that. They're making it easy so they don't have to reject you. Because you no one wants to reject there are very few people who really take joy in being like dude your idea is stupid don't ever call me again <laughs> right there are those yeah. misogynistic people out there that yeah. love that but and actually i actually kind of like those folks cuz i know cuz you know where you stand with them which is kind of nice but you have to be able to navigate that playing field so for ian and i we talk to so many folks a lot of folks seemed ready to rock and and a few of them even fooled me and ended up never materializing to anything but eventually with time we found someone and it's funny the the guy we found and this is a really awesome lesson was actually ian's boss wow which is actually ian's boss so true story ian worked for a company that <clears throat> went through a, a merger and they unfortunately had to lay a bunch of people off and Ian gets called in to his boss's office. 
presumably for that conversation, right? But I'll kind of do a little bit of a Quentin Tarantino and we'll go back in time when Ian actually, he went to Virginia Tech, reached out through the Virginia Tech Alum Association and finds this guy who went to Virginia Tech. And Ian's like, look, I an interest in real estate. I've never worked at it before. And this guy's like, well, we primarily only hire people with experience, but keep in touch, flash forward, however much longer later. And he goes, we want to take a chance on someone like you, which is pretty cool. So he took a chance on Ian. And then flash back to, or flash forward to the presumable layoff conversation. And Ian's sitting down with the guy who recruited him. And he goes, as you know, we're laying people off. We want to keep you. And Ian goes, I'm flattered, but let me make your life a little bit easier. Have that difficult conversation. Don't have that difficult conversation with someone else because I'll go ahead and lay on the sword because this is what I'm doing now. And so Ian basically allowed someone else to keep their job and he took the golden parachute and literally went and moved in with my parents <laughs> and basically cut his salary to do mobile home parks full time. So he got to go full-time before I did and literally live in my old room, which is nuts. And he ended up making $4,000 over something like nine months. So he paid himself like effectively nothing Yeah, and just cut everything. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I was working a corporate job making, you know, plus or minus 80 a year. And I, on the one hand, I'm looking at this being like, oh, dude, he's working harder and making no money. But on the other hand, we do a, a call at the beginning of the day and the end of the day and the sound in his voice versus the sound in my voice, how passionate and excited he was to basically live in my old room <laughs> with my parents making nothing versus me like, God, I got to go to work. I'm leaving before the sun comes up. I'm getting home after the sun goes down. I would rather make no money and be back with my parents or your parents, so to speak. And it, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. So that was so he ends up after we reach out to everybody that we can think of he reaches back out or i can't remember if if which who reached out to who but basically his old boss was like i'm interested in what you're doing and he was our investor that's and, awesome yeah and we ended up buying several deals after that together and it's cheating and I'll tell you why it's cheating because he's a he's the chief investment officer at a huge real estate company. The man is an absolute genius, and we're anytime we have a real estate related question, he loves it. <laughs> he loves that's what he does professionally yeah. on a really high level. So to be able to call him up and be like, we're thinking of doing X, Y, and Z, and he loves teaching too. By the way, he's like, here's what I think. I think we do this with that. I think we do this here, and I think you do that there. And it's just an amazing partnership that our investor is not passive; he's active in that regard. And the education we've got from that, and obviously living in a mobile home for 14 months, the we have the operational expertise, and we have the the macro level expertise from just literally kind of sitting in the same room as that guy, so to speak. Very long-winded way of saying, put yourself out there. And also the folks who will sign up with you, because the other investors that we've gotten through time, it's funny. They're never folks that you just call out of the blue and then you sign up. They're always folks that you've known for years yeah. who have already had that trust and gone through a few things with you. 
and and but you still got to dial for dollars regardless. But the the best investors that we've had over the years have always been folks who've known us for a long time and kind of followed our our journey and gone. We're really sold on you guys. Let's work something out. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about? I know earlier you say you looked at a lot of different businesses to acquire. What made you choose mobile home parks as the one? Yeah, so just to give you a few for examples, I wrote a book. I thought that would be a fun thing to do and a good business because my father's a college professor and I figured I was going to be an educator. So I wrote a book. I made $19.18 and I spent way more than that on the website and the marketing and everything. So I lost money, but it is, I can't, my, so my dad's actually written a bunch of books and I remember calling him up and being like, Dad, I made made money on my book. Well, kind of. <laughs> my dad's like, that's cute. I've He's, he's, yeah, extremely impressive in terms of what he's been able to write. But I did that. Obviously, I lost money there. Uh, I tried to, we we tried to do a, a blog, uh, my buddy and I tried to do a blog for Charlotte that ended up failing. What else did we do? I tried to do a, a few online Tim Ferriss four hour work week things that ended up falling through. My wife and I had a few ideas that ended up falling through. And so we just, we looked at everything. And my, I, I'm going to say this, even though my wife absolutely hates that I keep saying this, but also I'll start out here. When I met my wife, we moved in together within four months of meeting each other. And we just knew like we, there's, there's no other way to describe it. If you haven't experienced it, you just have to experience it. But when you meet your significant other, it, everything just makes sense. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel, you're like, boom, this is it. And I know she hates when I say a mobile home park also gave that same reaction in me, like, oh my gosh, you're going to compare me to a mobile. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. It just fit me like a glove. And here's just a really simple example. From a young age, I realized what I wanted to do with charity in my life was tutor or help the education of underprivileged kids. Hmm. And for me to be able to go in and buy affordable real estate, and make them clean and safe and get to work with the children to make sure they get a good education. That fits what I've always wanted to do, dedicate my life to. I'm not a non-for-profit, but there are a lot of charitable things I do that matches at my core what I've wanted to do in my life. So I can make a, so it's not like, oh, I work for this corporate job and I tutor for heart math tutoring on the side. This is like, no, I created Archimedes Group. We have a partial scholarship. We offer to pay for your kids' college applications so they can apply to five schools or however many schools they want and not have to worry about a hundred plus dollars per application. We are here to work with you and your kids. We do free food giveaways. So what we realized living in these mobile home parks is that a lot of folks, even though they always pay on time, they may have 10 bills a month and they may only be able to pay three to five, Yeah, but they're going to pay for their food, their water and their shelter. And they're going to let things like their car go get repoed. They're going to let, they're literally at the end of the month deciding, do I pay my rent, my food or my medicine? And it's really sad. And so we realized if we do stuff like free food giveaways, I mean, the, 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 the reactions you get are just amazing. The, the, the gratitude folks have, it's just, I know people get really excited when they see IRRs 
and when they see money hit the bank account. And so do I. When when you refinance a property, it's exciting. <clears throat> when you close on a good deal, it's exciting. But nothing is as exciting as when you really help someone. And I don't mean like giving someone a handout. I mean figuring out what is a real pain point in their life and even just temporarily helping them out. That thank you is way more gratifying and exciting than any cool thing I will ever do in real estate. So it's really, so getting back to your original question, why mobile home parks, it's, it's everything. It's, it's the charitable stuff I want to do. It's, I want to make a difference in these kids' lives and these people's lives. But it's also the fact that I realize I'm actually, I, I'm not that smart of a person. I'm not. I'm, I score above average on tests and go, go to, went to a good school, but I didn't go to Ivy League. I didn't score perfect or close to perfect on the SAT or the GMAT. I'm not that smart. Conventionally speaking, I need to be David, not Goliath, because I will lose if I go head to head with with most smart, smart people that I interact with. And it's the same thing for working hard, right? So when I worked in a, at the, the corporate job I had, I worked with people who are smarter and harder working than I was. So I realized conventionally speaking, I'm not going to beat them. The only way I'm going to beat them is if I'm willing to do something they're not willing to do. And the guttural reaction that even I had driving through my first mobile home park was just, oh, I do not feel safe. (laughs) And once I got over that, I went, that's an opportunity because people aren't going to want to do this. And then also inject steroids in that I would literally move to one and live in one when there's poor lighting and I have no idea what I just heard in the bushes, <laughs> I realize that it's it's unconventional. People don't want to operate them and it matches what I want to do charity-wise. And also, because I have a background in sales, persuasion, negotiation, marketing is all a part of it. So it just fits all my skill sets like a glove. Yeah. Well, you're kind of talking on that. Can can you give us a little idea of what your investment criteria looks like? I mean, you, you obviously mentioned looking for something that somebody else doesn't want. Location, location, location. I try my best to keep it simple. I love uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great, where he says hedgehog versus fox. And I, you know, I, again, like I'll reiterate this. I'm not that smart of a person and I can't compete. I, I I have to be unconventional, right? And so if I create a really easy strategy, I stand a chance to be successful. Because I am I have friends in this industry who went to MIT and UPenn and outrageously smart guys who will always have better pro formas than I will. So the way I'm competitive with them is I keep it simple. And here's how I keep it simple. If I have a great location, the real estate's going to do the rest. So I, I will only, but I don't care if it's private utilities or direct build. I don't care if it's tons of park owned homes where I'm effectively, I have a flat apartment complex basically, or if they own all their own homes, gravel roads, dirt roads, uh, big, small, medium. I don't care if it is in a good location, I am going to make an offer on it. I, I think I did the math and I, I maybe get about 10% of the properties I make offers on. So a lot of rejection in that regard too. That's still a pretty good number. Well, I'm competitive, so obviously I want that number to be yeah. higher. But yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty decent relative to some of the, my friends in the industry who basically just throw LOIs out and just see what happens. But what what I my strategy is, is if I like the location and I am sold on the location, I really don't care about the rest. The re, If I can 
get it for the price that makes sense for what our company wants to do and our investors want, then as long as the location's right, I'm in. So easy. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. What yeah. does like the right location look like within a certain radius of a city or do you yes. have to visit it and know it? Absolutely. Like, well, all of the above, right? So I don't care if it's a one-star property, if it's in the middle of downtown Charlotte, <laughs> you buy that piece of property, yeah. right? If it's a five-star property and it takes three hours to get to the nearest town, that's 20,000 people, dude, forget it. Not interested, even at a steal. I have friends in my industry right now that have rural properties. At the it, right now, it is about as frothy as it can get, <laughs> and people are overpaying for properties just left and right. And I have friends in this industry that cannot sell at the top of the market for a reasonable price right now. Really? Yeah. Well, if you're in the middle, if you're in a town with five thousand people, and the closest the county has maybe twenty thousand people, and you're not even close to a big city, forget about it. McKinsey, the consulting firm just just came out with a report that basically confirmed what I think a lot of us in real estate were suspecting, which is that people are moving to big cities. Big cities are exploding and rural America is getting whacked hard. And the truth of the matter is all, all coming back to this, if the trend is that people are moving to big cities, affordable housing is going to be a must. So if I can grab whatever I can grab for a reasonable price, I'm going to do it. And for my friends that are that own more rural stuff that got into it because they're like, wow, this is a great price or this is a great whatever, they just they can't exit right now. And the thing of it is, if you're but then again, if you want to be unconventional, I'll kind of make myself a hypocrite. If you want to be unconventional right now, buy rural properties. Just buy them right and plan to sit on them forever. Yeah, as long as they cash flow, right? Yep. Yeah. So is there anything like location is obviously very important, but I mean, there's a ton of mobile home parks that pop up in big cities. How do you decide which ones fit your criteria and which ones don't? Dependent. I've bought four star properties. I've bought one and a half star properties. I've bought big, I bought small, I've bought medium. I think it all comes down to for me, is there an aspect of it that is that I can come in and do something other people aren't willing to do? So for example, I bought this one in Gastonia here. It was 32 lots with a single family home, 100% park on home, meaning it was effectively a, a flat apartment complex, yeah. right? But it's worse than that because your tenant base is just, they're not as, as good as what you can command in an apartment complex, right? And we bought that for what I thought was a good price. And by that, I mean for the seller. So we actually, they went out and got an appraisal. And we ended up paying them, I think it was like 15000 more than the appraised value. Wow. So in other words, and that's how I, my MO is like, am I going to say no to something that I can buy for less than appraised value? Of course, everybody wants arbitrage. But my what I want to take pride in is being able to buy something, roll up my sleeves, sleep on the property if I have to. I've got a wonderful blow-up mattress. <laughs> and, and make that property worth more because I was there. Not because I hired some third-party management company, not because I raised the rents. You know, I want to make a property better because Ryan Neris and Ian Tudor were their boots on the ground doing what no one else was willing to do. So to use Dogwood as a, for example, no one wanted it. It looked awful. It looked awful. It looked awful. I was telling you guys the story earlier about how the one tenant bought drugs in front of my face. That was 7.30 on a Sunday morning, 7.30 in the morning yeah. with a with a guy in his 70s heartbreaking 
it was it was really it really hurt that was one of my lowest moments is going I really feel for this guy in his situation. I want to keep him even though he's way low on rent. And I mean, stupid low, like to the point where I'm probably losing money on him low on rent. But I just feel for this guy in his situation. And it turned out he was a complete liar hmm. and completely dangerous for the kids in the neighborhood. And I had to show up the next day and, and kick him out. And the thing is, on my podcast, I talk about this. One of my properties, someone threatened my life. Someone said he was going to show up to the office and kill me and all my employees. And not that I want to put myself in those situations, but situations where you have maybe a, a, a rougher tenant base or you have poor collections or you have massive infrastructure issues. What, what that does beyond just the traditional, oh yeah, you buy it from a mom and pop that that doesn't pass for utilities and is way low on rent. Like that's dude that you're looking for arbitrage at that point. Cause you want to go in and raise rents and not do anything and think you're a brilliant real estate guy. I don't want that. I want to find somewhere where there was significant mismanagement where I can come in and either speak my broken Spanish because it, by the way, if you're listening in, teach yourself Spanish, you don't need to be that good at it. Trust me. Mine is awful, <laughs> but it's enough. Like my Spanish tenants would say, it's bastante, which means it's enough. That gives you a competitive advantage and you can go in and do things that others can't do. So for me, what am I looking for? I'm looking for serious mismanagement and I don't mean something easy. I mean something tough. And uh, just to kind of end, because I feel like I'm now starting to talk in circles. I interviewed this guy named Sam Klein, who's local here in Charlotte, who's a broker. He told one of my favorite stories about real estate. He told the story about how he sold a dilapidated building in downtown Belmont. And no one wanted it. He had it listed for something like $99,000. And he said he must have showed it 100 times to 100 different people. And everybody balked. No one wanted it. He was like, look, it was an old building. It was dilapidated, but the foundation was good. So all it needed was the right person with the right attitude who's willing to roll up their sleeves. And eventually he did find that. And he ended up selling it for like a 50% discount, like 49,000 bucks or, or whatever the numbers were. But he sold it to an art dealer or an, uh, a woman who wanted to make a studio out of it. And she just was so thrilled that she couldn't believe that this property was there and existed and she could get it for the price she got it at. And she dumped her heart and soul into it. And now it is one of the most beautiful buildings in downtown Belmont. And Sam says now when he drives a client through, he always points at that building and he goes, you know, I only sold that for 49000 or whatever. And Sam, Sam goes, everybody that I do that to goes, oh, you should call me next time. <laughs> you know, you should call me for those off-market opportunities. And Sam's like, not only was that on market, but in theory, I did call you. I showed it like a hundred times. Yeah. No one wanted to roll up their sleeves and do it. But one person saw that the foundation was good. All it needed was some TLC. And that is who I want to be as a real estate investor. Someone who finds something dilapidated, but you know, as long as the foundation is there, so to speak, right. I want to be the one to pay more than appraised value. So the seller wins and I get an opportunity where I can go and I can inject my own yeah. blood, sweat and tears and make that property worth more because I was there. I love that. So you're looking to do like significant value add or repositioning in places? Significant value add, yes. So where do you find those kind of deals? Do you just look for what's been sitting on the market for 180 days or? 
how do you find those all of the above you have to do everything you can you have to reach out to owners directly you have to go on loopnet you have to go through brokers you have to network amongst mm -hmm. other mobile home park owners you have to do everything you can to find a deal because it is so hard to find deals right now so i know it's not sexy to talk about patience but at 32 years old, if I can even just buy one good deal a year for the next 20 years, by the time I'm 52, I will have at least 20 properties I will have bought right. And I will have refinanced or done whatever I needed to do to make sure my company is is profitable too. But that is not something a lot of people want to hear. People want to hear, oh, great, this is a great asset class. I want to go raise a fund and I want to scale up as quickly as possible. And although you can do that, it's definitely riskier. My thing is, I don't ever want to wind up back at corporate America. And I can do that if I build a business slowly and sustainably. Yeah. No, that's smart. I mean, making sure you're getting your cash flows and hitting your numbers. What's a deal breaker for you? You kind of talked a lot about what you're looking for. You mentioned, I guess, the rural areas. Yeah, rural areas right now, the biggest deal breaker is people wanting just stupid prices. And and I like to equate it like this. People right now want to sell you cookie dough for the price of a finished cookie. Yeah. People go, oh, well, I've owned this forever. There's 10 vacant pads. All you have to do is move in new homes and then it's worth blah. <laughs> All you have to do is raise the rents and it's worth blah. And it's like, if it was that easy, you would have done it. And the point of being a value buyer isn't that I'm going to pay you for the value and hard work that I do. The reason why I want to take on a heavy project is because I want to buy this at pennies on the dollar for what I will make it worth. Like I'll pay you more than what it's worth as is. But unless you go and do that work, why would I pay you for the work that I'm going to do? And the problem is when you have some mobile home parks is this industry is has been subjected to a lot of misinformation and hype and so we have a lot of people entering the space that truly have no idea what they're doing and they are reaching out directly to owners before they get things in place and before they can actually prove that they can buy and i'll give you a great example even i felt like i was prepared and i got 40 no's on my first property so the problem is when you have mom and pop owners in a fragmented industry it doesn't take a genius to get five letters in the mail over uh, however many month period and a bunch of phone calls to realize you're sitting on something valuable. And the thing is the reasonable sellers, they're gone because those folks that were doing the mailing and the cold calling and direct outreach, they've already sold. So what's left are people who are either going to go down with the ship, so to speak, like they're dying and leaving it to their kids, or they're just like, yeah, if you give me a billion dollars, I'll sell it. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of what's left. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about like how how you make offers? You said off sure. of appraised value as is. How do you determine that without actually getting a, a full blown appraisal? A lot of times you a lot of times owners do that. I mean, I mean, I talked to the woman right now who point blank was like, I'm getting an appraisal. Actually, more than one woman right now who are like, I'm getting an appraisal. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to you just have to do that. You know, you just have to allow them to do whatever they have to do to feel comfortable with it. And, and my big thing is that I just, it really irks me hearing folks who brag about what they bought things for. And the reason is, it's because I feel like that's almost insulting to the folks that you're buying from because you're effectively bragging that you found arbitrage. And, and like I said, 
I really take pride in the fact that it's worth more because I was there. So how do I value these things? I mean, you, you have to value it from a what is it doing right now standpoint, not what can I make this worth? I mean, obviously, that's going to be a part of, of factoring it, because if I do a ton of work and it's only worth you know, a little bit more, is that worth my time? You ha- my biggest valuation technique is going, what is my time divided by my dollar? Right. If I dump in X amount of time, what is my output in dollars relative to other opportunities I think are out there? And then obviously you pick the one that's the highest dollar per hmm. per time. So how do you value it? It's it's a little bit of everything. You do it on a per pad basis, you do it on a cap rate basis, you do it on a what could I make this worth basis. It, you do it on a if this is a low vacancy lower loan to value standpoint, your cash on cash returns are going to get crushed because you have to put up more capital. If I have to bring in a lot of mobile homes, that's a lot of capital. So that's going to crush your cash on cash returns. So I, you have to look at everything. I'll, I'll tell a quick, funny story because the, the dude who is responsible for this will probably listen to this and chuckle and thank me for not mentioning him by name. <laughs> who is it again? But, <laughs> but a friend of mine called me up one day and he was like, dude, I've got, I've got the next, the next it thing. It's going to make us a ton of money. I'm like, okay, I'm listening, bro. Used cell phones. I'm like, okay, explain. You can buy one for a hundred bucks and sell it for a whole lot more. I'm like, I'm going to sit this one out, but please tell me how it goes. (laughs) Long story short, a month or two later, he calls me up and he's like, so I'm not doing the used cell phone thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shocker. What happened? He's like, well, I bought one and I sold it for 200 bucks. So technically I made 100% cash on cash returns. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so your, your cash on cash look great. I'm like, so why stop? And he's like, dude, it's not scalable. Okay, that's fair. It, it took me, he was like, it took me 10 hours to do that. So I basically paid myself 10 bucks an hour. So the reason why I tell that story, not only is to make fun of my friend, but also to point out that you could get 100% cash on cash return and make 10 bucks, or you can get a 1% cash on cash return and make a million bucks, depending on how you finagle the numbers. So for me, it always comes down to time. How much time am I putting in and how much money am I making per dollar, uh, per time, per dollar? Yeah. I love the way to analyze it. I'm guessing that makes you stay shy away from the smaller deals unless it's like quick. You don't have a choice. Yeah. You have to stay away from smaller deals. We just bought an awesome smaller deal in Salisbury, North Carolina. It was tiny though. It was about 25 lots. I, we feel like we bought it right. It was seller carry. Great property, pretty turnkey, direct build, water, sewer, not a whole, almost 100% tenant owned. So not a whole, whole lot to do. And it turned out to be a heavy lift. Did not see that coming. Uh, the, oh. the few park owned homes that we had, our basis turned out to be way high. And because it was a smaller deal, we didn't want to dump a ton of money into it. And then we realized we had to dump a ton of money into it. And then because we dumped a, money, a ton of money into it, we, it took us, I think, four months to sell. And Salisbury is a good market to sell the home. And it was just, it was a frustrating process. And what we realized through, through that process is even though now it's, it's basically at 100% collected, a good property, we've dumped a bunch of money into the property, making it better, bought a playground, uh, installing volleyball, 
it's uh, there's a lot of Hispanics, so we would go and speak to them in our broken Spanish face to face, and so we're building trust with them, and, and things are going well. But then the thing is, it's uh, it's a 25 lot community, so I mean, realistically, how much? Even if I sold it for double what I paid for it, that's still not that much money. So what I like to say to folks is, if you are getting into this space, people like me who I'm between a small and medium-sized mobile home park operator, I am not looking at those. And the medium-sized operators and up are not looking at those. That's a good way to get in, right? Sometimes, Mm -hmm. like I said earlier, you want to hit a single or at least walk on your first deal. It is not as competitive. Now, there's downsides with that because you're not going to be able to exit for a big number. But here's the thing. You will be able to speak with confidence to brokers and other owners and and investors if you have gotten in. So don't let a small property and a little bit of money keep you from getting in and taking action. But at my level now, the only way I'd really consider a small one is if it's like a Salisbury. And even then, I'm thinking twice because out of nowhere, it can turn into a heavy lift. Do you have any like rule of thumbs like that you'll look at a deal like it's got you know 100 pads well if it's like do you have a per pad price you're like all right i'll look at that and know that i want to pay 15 grand a pad or 20 do you have like a rule of thumb number you look at i i do and again it's so i was a stats minor undergrad and in mba my concentration was in business analytics and then my internship for my mba was at carnival cruise lines and the cool thing about that was I worked in their fleet deployment team and we got just an impossible amount of data to go through. And the fun thing was we found, I think even in two months, I ended up finding like 2 million bucks worth of revenue that we were missing out on based on multivariate regression analysis. And the reason why I bring all of that up is because I, I'm bringing, I bring that same mentality to real estate. And when you're doing heavy statistical, like like super complicated Monte Carlo simulations and multivariate regressions, what you're doing is you're doing more than looking at an average or even a range. You're looking at as many different things as you can to get to the right answer. So Einstein has a quote that I'm going to butcher, but it's one of my favorite quotes. In so many words, it's like, if I have an hour to solve a problem, I'm spending 55 minutes or 50 minutes trying to craft the perfect question. And when I find the perfect question, the problem's over, it's done. I spend the last five to 10 minutes planning out my action steps. And I apply that same logic to real estate and to obviously business analytics, is you wanna look at the problem from as many angles as you can. So it's not a cash on cash, it's not a cap rate, it's not, it's not even the, the money divided by time thing, or even per pad. It's you want to look at everything, period. So this one I've got under contract in Rock Hill that hopefully, fingers crossed, closes next week. I'm paying like 45000 a pad for, which is a lot. My Gastonia one, I paid about twenty four. So you can look at it on a per pad basis, but that can be extraordinarily misleading, especially because a lot of folks like to say, well, you are so for example here's a great example the 527 lot community i bought in atlanta was something like 199 a pad but there are only 280 give or take mobile homes on it and also a lot of those pads were not viable they were zoned for 527 but there's really about 450 actual sites and of those sites there wasn't infrastructure in all of them 
So in other words, when you actually look at what it was with actual homes on, it was closer to or above 40, I don't remember. So in other words, there's a lot of ways you can lie with statistics. And so my, which a big reason why I'm glad I worked professionally in it and have basically two degrees in it is it forces you to look at everything from as many different angles as possible. So in terms of a rule of thumb, do I have a rule of thumb? No, I have a, well, I guess my rule of thumb is you look at this problem every which way you possibly can. Can you talk about like, obviously I'm sure you see a lot of deals come across your desk. How do you relatively quickly, like an under without spending five hours looking at every deal, how do you figure out whether this is being severely mismanaged and then there's a potential opportunity here and you should spend more time looking at all the angles for a property? First and foremost, I Google Maps the address. That's a, I could tell you in 30 seconds if I want it or not. So let's assume hypothetically that I've done that. And now, well, 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 let's not sure. skip over that. What okay. does that look like? You say you Google Map it. What, yes. what are you looking for? Where is it? I mean, is okay, it, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, is it, like, is it near a city? Is it near things? Yeah, I guess um, that, that was a dumb question. No, it's okay. <laughs> I apologize. What I kind just, of trees? <laughs> yeah, is um, that a hickory? <laughs> we, uh, you know, it's so. Here, let me let me pivot a little bit here. Look at the address, even if it's kind of more rural. I still want to look at the count, the city, the county, and the MSA. Yeah, you want to see infrastructure, I guess. You want to see... Let me give you a great for example. We found one in Gaston, South Carolina. Excuse me. We found one in Gaston, South Carolina, which is a suburb of Columbia. I thought so. Yeah, heading towards the beach. Yeah. So you're like, dude, this is huge. Let's look at it. We want to own a Columbia great market. Then you zoom down a little bit and you're like, what's, you know, what's Columbia doing growth-wise? What's Gaston doing? Growth wise, Columbia is decently stable. Actually, a lot of millennials are moving in. Okay. So I, I'm a fan of it, of Columbia as a market. Gaston is south. And when you zoom out on Columbia, you'll see that West Columbia is booming. You'll see that towards the east, it, re- reasonable growth. Uh, and to the north, you see some growth. You see nothing south. I mean, trees. It is really, it's like Charlotte. Charlotte is growing along the highways. There's a lot of areas of, of even Charlotte that the path of growth just doesn't go through. And it's the true for any market, right? So we're looking at Columbia and we're like, Gaston is a reasonable drive to Columbia. It's in the MSA. But if you look at the demographics, like 100 people have moved there in the last few years. And that's it. And here's why that's relevant. Yeah, you can be like, I bought in the Columbia MSA. But if 100 people move, because you have to change your driver's license, a whole to-do when you move to another city, right? If 100 people move there and you have serious collections issues and you have to kick out a lot of people, all of a sudden it's not that appealing anymore. Yeah. So step one, first and foremost, where is it? Is it in the path of growth of something? Am I going to struggle getting people to it? Yeah. Because my thing is, in my, some of my properties, I have literally walked potential people through homes before the court date to evict someone. <laughs> I have sold homes. I've had people leave deposits and pass my background check before the person getting evicted has even left. In some of my markets, I don't have to do any work anymore because I've already figured out how to market to everybody and now I have waiting lists and I can literally just take deposits on homes. That is how I want it. I don't want to have to have what I had in Salisbury where I have to take four months of my time wondering how to tinker with the marketing to find the right person for this home. Because spending 
four months on one home on one property is not a way to scale up a business. So assuming the demographics are there and it passes the, you know, the quick, where is it test? What am I looking at next? It gets, it gets really difficult because with a fragmented industry, you have a lot of mom and pops that don't use computers and they don't have good records. And a lot of them take cash. And the thing with taking cash is you can go, my lot rent's 200, but then take 250 and pocket that 50 bucks and not report it to the IRS. And that happens everywhere. And the problem is you pay for that one way or another. Yeah, you might not be paying the IRS, but guess what? When an appraiser goes through there or when a bank looks at it, they are looking at the tax records and your appraisal will suffer if you skim some off the top. And try to explain that to a 70-year-old who's owned a property their whole life. They get angry, understandably yeah. so. But look, if you are doing things unethical, you're going to pay for it one way or another. So in other words, you have that to contend with. So you have like what is it cash flowing and what is it really cash flowing? You have, okay, what are the rent rolls and what are the rent rolls? You know, so you have a bunch of different ways. So in other words, if let's just assume the location is good and we have real, real financials to look at, then what I just do is I go, okay, what is this claiming it's doing? What is it realistically doing? Yeah. Because a lot of times people will be like, oh yeah, the expenses are a thousand dollars a month. Okay. What about insurance? Oh, well, I only pay that once a year, so I guess I didn't really include that. Let me look that up. Oh, that's $3,000 a year. Okay, great. What about taxes? Oh, I only pay that once a year. What about landscaping? Well, Larry does that, and I just give him a rent concession. Okay, so there's all these expenses you haven't told me about. So it's really hard to put together a what is this really doing? Because then you're also contending with their delusions. And then if you have a broker involved a broker's aligned with a seller, right? A broker's trying to get the biggest commission possible and he's trying to crank up the, make things look great. So you have to, they give you a pro form and they're like, you know, dude, it's, it's a, it's an eight cap and a good market. That's a, that's a steal. And you're like, it's not really an eight cap. <laughs> it's an eight cap after I do all the work. What is it doing right now? It's not doing that. Right. So in other words, it's not, it's, it's not quick. It's just not a quick thing. It, you really got to do a ton of research. And I think ultimately why you're asking this question is time becomes a factor. And if I'm looking at a lot of deals and I look at a lot of deals, how can I go, all right, this is worth three hours of my time to really dig, to really pick up the phone and speak with the local sheriff and the municipality, drive through the property. Like at what point in time do I get that gist? And for me, it's where is it, you know, where is it physically located? What's the address? What is that MSA like? Is it in the path of growth? Is it not? And then like, what is a, just a quick overview of what I think I can do with this property? So if it's, if it's all city city, I can reasonably assume I could probably get it down to about a 35% expense ratio. If I already know what the market rents are, let's say I can push it up to the market rent. So in other words, in year three, what is this doing? When I'm get done getting bad people out, getting good people in, fixing the mismanagement, where am I at in year three? And if I can then go, here's where I'm going to be at in year three, here's what I bought it for in year zero. Hmm. That is probably the rule. Th that's probably the answer you're, you're yeah, ultimately exactly. looking for is, what is this going to be like when I am done? When it's stable, I've refinanced it, taken the proceeds, and I'm, you know, I've got a good in-place manager, and I go once a week, once every other week, once a month to check on everything, because it's done, right? What is that going to be relative to what I bought it for? What's my IRR? What's my cash on cash by then? 
How, what does the refinance look by then? That will then solve the, is it worth my time? At which point in time that I can pick up the phone, call the sheriff, call the municipality. Yeah, I offer. love that. Can you you mentioned uh, the expense ratio of 35% if it's on yes. city utilities. That's great to know for listeners. Can you also talk about um, how do you identify where market rent should be, whether it's lot rent only or lot rent plus the home? How do you determine that in a market you aren't intimately familiar with? You've got to pick up the phone and call. You've got to call uh, and as everybody in the area it's best to usually talk to property managers and actually it's even better to speak with people on site because a lot of times a property manager will say one thing or you'll find out an owner is completely delusional or they will never call you back. <laughs> and the funny thing is if you can speak enough Spanish, you, uh, the Hispanics usually when you, you, you show up and by the way, for the listeners who don't know what I look like, just imagine like a really dorky white guy. <laughs> so, Every time I speak Spanish to someone, they're shocked. So the initial shock, like, did I did I imagine this, right? So you say, you know, KS la renta terreno, like, what is lot rent? And so folks will say, like, tres cientos cada mes, so three hundred bucks each month, right? And you know, you'll talk to them a little bit, you know, and, and build a little rapport and maybe tell a joke or two, and and then they get comfortable with you, and it's. As long as they're not like, oh, is this ice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, or is this, or, or more commonly, like, are you coming to buy this property? Right. So, as long as you can kind of circumvent that and kind of shadow box with them a little bit so you can kind of dodge stuff like that, you, you get really good information. Yep. Really good information. I was, I was looking at this one property in Colombia in the city limits of Colombia, like right by the heart of downtown. The deal looked like a steal. And I showed up and I talked to a guy who'd been living there for 15 years and he just, regurgitated all sorts of stuff where I was like, Oops. I'll put it to you this way. The first thing out of his mouth was because there's caution tape around this, this like hole in the ground. And I was like, you know, what, what's going on here? Why is there a spare tire and caution tape? And he's like, oh, that's the water main. He's like, it kept shooting off and going everywhere. So we just put a tire on it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> okay. Wow. That's why you go to the properties. So you find out all sorts of stuff when you go to the properties and talk to the local residents and you, you'll find out things like, okay, half the property is paying 150. The property manager is trying to move in people at 250 or there's four people at 250 and, or it's an average of this, right? So even if you get a hold of an owner or property manager, yeah, eventually you need to go to the property. But if you don't have that kind of time, obviously you pick up the phone and you call anyone you can. Right. Mm. You gave a little nugget away there, like uh, just very casually, but you said you call the local sheriff when you're looking at, who, who do you call in the area? Like that sounds like a great idea. Municipalities range. Ranlo, where we're at in Gastonia, they have their own, it's a, it's an, it's a little town, even though it's a Gastonia address, it has a little township. And they have everything right there, like a mile from our property, fire, police, the works. Treasure trove of information. I am the only mobile home park in Ranlow. So it is fair to say I am the trailer king of Ranlow. And that's what they joke with me when I show up. They're like, hey, look. It's the biggest mobile home park owner in Ranlow. Hey. <laughs> All 32 lots. But no, they are treasure trove of information. We've done, so our first deal was in Hillsboro, North Carolina. And we ended up calling... Uh, the sheriff locally there who basically told us you all, though you have a Hillsborough address are actually in Orange County. So we ended up having to call the county who then redirected us to someone else. And so it just, it, it varies because a lot of times 
you will have something with an address that isn't actually technically have been annexed within that municipality or, you know, so it's in the county or it's not in the county. And, and then obviously you can pull crime reports and all sorts of sources, stuff like that. But you can call all sorts of folks from the tax assessor to find out, hey, are the taxes going up? When's the last time it was assessed? What's your opinion of this piece of property? You can call the permit office, which is I highly recommend you do in your due diligence of anything that you buy because the permit office will tell you if they are harassing these folks or not, or even if they just have some concerns about it. And oftentimes when they find out you're under contract on something, they get excited, especially if it's been mismanaged because they, there are a lot of government employees get trashed a lot, rightfully so. But there are some that are really passionate about their jobs and they really, truly want to work with you. I have some awesome relationships with some local folks that from, I mean, I remember this one woman in Clayton County, South Atlanta, who the biggest smile on her face when I'd walk into her office. And reason is because she had my personal cell phone number. She can call me with any questions. I paid on time in full. She didn't have to chase me down for anything. I was proactive about stuff. And she's like, no one else is like that. So you can, I actually, just to give you a little nugget, I, I remember I was talking to this one mobile home park owner who had been doing it for 20, 30 years. And he told me, he's like, I have scaled a local portfolio here because of my relationship with the permit office. Yeah. Because I went to high school with the now superintendent or supervisor, whatever the title is. And he tells me when a property is in violation and ethically or legality, whether that's cool or not. It's public information, right? Dude, if he has the thing of real estate is it is legal insider trading. If you have those relationships and you know a property is about to get fined or harassed or X, Y, or Z, and then you happen to show up with an LOI. Pretty good timing, yeah. Yeah, and that's how the guy did it. And I was like, dude, that's brilliant. And he's like, the only thing is you have to have the patience because it took me 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like you don't just walk in and, you know, bring someone some flowers or buy them lunch. And then all of a sudden they're going to call you anytime. You know, this is something like I went to high school with this dude. I was at his wedding. You know, I met all of his employees. I watched him get promoted through the years. Like you can't get that realistically. It's like that investor tidbit I was talking about earlier. Like you, you, you could, yeah, sure. You could call up and get an investor you need to be doing that. But the truth is like your best investors are the people that you've known for years. Right. But it's the same right. thing. You mentioned earlier, just really casually, that you've got a waiting list for a lot of your homes. Yes. Can you talk about what marketing channels or what things you've found success that other people might be able to apply to not just mobile homes, but apartments or single family houses or other commercial real estate? What are you seeing that's working? We can build that waiting list because that's obviously uh, an envious position. So here's a crazy story. We own three properties in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And the one property that I had a waiting list for, we just nailed it. We, it, it was right, it's right behind a school, right by the mall, everything, it's right off the highway, wonderful location. Hmm. And we, so we spoke, we went to local Iglesias, spoke with the sacerdotes and put out little flyers that were in retrospect atrocious because we said casas baratas, which basically means cheap houses. <laughs> and it, it, it's better to say things like trailas affordables, 
because that's it's just it's kind of like saying cheap houses are affordable living, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's a nice little psychological trick. But what we ended up finding out through that is that word of mouth was huge in that market, and we ended up, it wasn't you know mm-hmm. we did we do Facebook yes did we do Zillow and Craigslist all of the above. But the thing is, if you so for example in Spartanburg you throw something on Craigslist, it will explode, and nine nine out of ten people will be massive time wasters. And I mean, massive, massive time wasters, almost to the point where you're like, dude, I don't even want you to apply. Because I know what happens here, you're going to get rejected. And then you're going to ask me for your app feedback and then get offended when I say I dude, I can't know I'm not giving your application feedback. I told you prior to you giving me this that it was non refundable. And it's almost like God, I hate those conversations. So there's a bunch of different levers you can pull. So for example, in Tallahassee, Florida, Zillow is huge. I posted an ad on Zillow for one home and I got in the next morning and I had like 50 messages. I tried Zillow in Spartanburg and the only messages I got were, hey, your listing is still up from Zillow. You should try this. I've tried Craigslist in some markets. I've tried Facebook Marketplace in some markets. I've tried I've tried Bandit Signs. I've tried you know the local Inglesias. Uh, I've tried local churches. I've tried local stores. I've tried all of the above, and I've tried word of mouth. And the the truth is, what works in one market just will not work in another. You have to put in that time yourself. You have to be on site talking to people because a lot of times, what you, the the best tenants will be the folks that your current tenants talk to. So I'll give you a great for example. I have a gentleman here in Gastonia who I think the absolute world of. And he moved in and he's a fix-it guy. So I've been I've sold him some of my 1960s models that I can't remove because I can't replace because the lot's too small. And they're just money pits for fixes. And he's a, a fix-it guy. So you know, I went to him, I got comfortable with him because he bought one for me for next to nothing, fixed it. Now he lives there and he showed me his workmanship and I'm like, I, dude, I will sell you this home for like 500 bucks. It's yours. As long as, you know, X, Y, and Z, as long as you have the time, the know-how and the money to actually invest in this, I will sell this to you for next to nothing. You can flip it. You can rent it. You can do whatever you want. And so I, a true handyman special, right? So I, I vetted him out and he's a resident and I just, I trust, he's now my maintenance guy because he's just a stud. And he has fil- helped me filled my community because of the folks he knows. So in Gastonia, I post something on Facebook Marketplace and I'll get 500 plus responses. No matter what, almost no matter what I price it at. I mean, I made one ad just to test and I would say about two thirds of the responses were trolls, just people being like, "Is this you, available?" <laughs> yeah, well, two thirds of the people were like, "This is a joke. This is Breaking Bad. This is a meth house. Someone's going to get raped in it." Like horrible things, right? Just complete internet trolls. So we got I don't know a thousand views, and six hundred sixty-seven of them were just straight trolls. But then the other third, three hundred, you know, plus, were like genuinely interested in it. And then of all of those. Only a handful were folks you actually want to consider, right? So a bunch of them are like, hey, what are your qualifications? Oh, you don't accept felonies, but like, do you accept some felonies? Yes, I accept some felonies. Depends on what it is. You know, I don't want drug drug sales. I don't want violence, right? And so they're like, well, I got a DWI or I got a, you know, this, that, or the other thing. You know, okay, well, I consider that, right? But sometimes you'll get, well, I, I got resisted, it was resisting arrest. 
right? And so you're like, uh, I just want to let you know up front, we screened for these type of things, but what was the nature of it? And they're like, well, I, I got resisting arrest for running away from the cops. I'm like, okay, well, can you tell me why you ran away from the cops? He's like, well, you know, I didn't have my driver's license and I, I just didn't feel like I should, you know, have to pull over and pay a fine for not having my driver's license. So I kept driving. It's like, okay. That's all I needed so, to know. Sir, you're welcome to apply. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like you go through that whole process and it'll take, you know, in Gastonia, it'll take me 30 to 60 days to find the right person. I'll go through hundreds of people on Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and, and, and Zillow. Or I have my resident who's knows all the local Hispanics who are also fix it guys who also want the $500 60s home that they can either live in themselves or they can flip it or they can rent it. And I, I now have like a nice little contingent of uh, like, I think maybe three, three homes now where like these local Hispanics who are a hundred percent legal because I demand it. I demand, I want, all of your documentation, it, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just trying to break any laws here. I want all your documentation. I want proof of funds. I want proof of employment. I want driver's licenses, you, you know, the works. And these, these guys are just bringing me these outstanding people, hmm. just decent credit. You know, you're, you're, you, it's very rare. You're going to get really good credit, good credit, you know, decent credit, good jobs, good people don't have to throw up an ad anywhere. They're seeking me out. And you get that by being on site with these people, building trust with these, these folks. And it's not just the Hispanics. It's all races. It's all genders. It's all everything. If you shake someone's hand and see them face to face and you tell them point blank, I've got a scholarship, you know, I, we work with Paley's. So if you want to pay online, you can opt into credit building. So every time you pay your rent, you build your credit. You talk about the free food giveaways. You do all of this stuff. You pump them full of value. And then you go, I am charging market. I'm not charging the hundreds of dollars above market. I'm charging market. But I am giving you so much more. The word gets out. And it's it's more than just speaking broken Spanish. It's also all the local communities, the churches, the, the schools, those folks go to those places and they have their friends and they want to, and, and especially the family folks. See, I like to say, I'm not in the real estate business. I'm in the community building business. And when you find that tenant who is about family and about community, then it's like the rule of attraction. They are going to attract like people and it is a slow process and it is something that you cannot underwrite. It will not pop in a pro forma. But if you get it, your communities will police themselves. I have folks call me anytime they see something sketchy now, which is great. And I talk to folks all across my properties and they will tell me we, these were things we did not do with the last ownership. Cause we did not that I'm friends with them, but I'm, I'm there on site and I'm not afraid to go and speak with them, which if you have, if you outsource to a third property management company, you're just never going to hit. No one's going to care about your properties like you will. That's awesome. Can you talk about like, I know you've mentioned a lot of stuff, but is there any other ways that you found you can consistently increase center wire, create value, whether it was like sub metering or um, seller financing the homes? What are like the common things that you look at to be able to increase value on a property? So I look in its most rudimentary form, you have two levers that you can pull your revenue and your expenses. 
right? So if I can increase rents, you're cranking up your gross revenues. If I can cut costs, you're cranking up your profitability, right? So then you deep, you do a little bit of more of a deep dive into that. You can, yeah, can you submeter your property? Yes. The problem that I've run into on literally every single, almost, actually, that's not true. All but one of my properties, I never collect 100% of my water. It does not happen. And in some cases, I collect dramatically less than half without major leaks. It just doesn't, it's just, there probably are leaks that I just haven't found yet. But when you, when it is not direct build and you own that infrastructure, you will have a leak somewhere at some point in time that is going to be hard to find if you can even find it and expensive to fix. So a lot of folks, I think that's part of the hype story of mobile home parks. Oh dude, just, you know, pass through utilities. I am in a huge fight in one of my properties with city sewer with a woman who I have literally called the attorney general of that state. And when I called the attorney general's office, they cut me off while I was explaining myself and they named this woman by her first and last name. And I was like, I'm clearly not the first person to call about this, right? And that has still not been resolved. I'm paying like $48,000 plus for sewage alone on one piece of property, which, yeah, if you are if you go and buy something thinking, you're, oh, it's city, city, I, it's going to be a 35% expense ratio. Uh-uh. Not in this county? Not new. No, not on this property. Yeah. I mean, I own a couple other ones close by just with a different sewer company. So it's like if you own that infrastructure and even if you don't, you need to buy these right. And what I mean by that is not look at something like that like upside. Look at something like, okay, I'm going to be able to cut some costs here. But, I, you know, you can't it, – it is – naive to think I'm going to, you're going to pass through water and all of a sudden you're going to collect, you know, an extra a hundred percent of that. And that's just going to be wiped away. That is a mistake. And I hate to say this, but there's, you can't even, you can't even go, all right, well, I'm going to collect 80% of it because I have one property. I have two properties that I collect 40% or less. And I have one property that collect between 80 and 90. And I had one property that collected about a hundred. So it's all over the board. Mm. So, you know, that's that's kind of, a, in my opinion, a, a, a bit of misinformation within my industry. Obviously, rent raises are another bit of um, of easy way to crank up the value. Passing through, through things like I have a friend of mine in Asheville who partnered up with the local TV company, TV and Internet and phone company, and basically was like, look, it costs 80 bucks a month for someone to sign up. I will literally pay for everybody's in this community, but you will charge me 40 and I'll pay and I'll charge them 60. Right. So in other words, you come to me because you're saving 20 bucks and I'm making 20 bucks. And then the local utility, basically the communications company is guaranteed all of his residents. Yeah. So there are clever things like that, that you can do too. And it doesn't always work out on a small property. That's not going to work out because my friend owns like two, 300 pads. So that's, scale where you start to be able to negotiate with these companies. But so that's that, you know, collections, that's a big one. A lot of folks, the the danger that I kind of play with fire in that I'm on my properties, I'm getting to know my residents because it becomes really difficult to evict someone that you start to get close to. But you have to have that that thick skin if you're going to take the strategy that I take. But you've got to be able to raise rents appropriately. 
you, that's a bit of upside. You got to be able to find ways to cut costs. Like a lot of times a mom and pop will, they'll funnel their mortgage and their car payment and all sorts of other crap through the property that obviously you can cut out immediately. And there's just a bunch of different ways. So for example, trash is a big one. Trash is a big one. What I found with trash is if you have the pull away ones, dude, you're going to get rocked, period. People are going to throw mattresses in it or next to it. You're going to have people from outside the community mm -hmm. handling it. And, and what I found is that, you know, say you're spending 10 to 15 bucks for the pull, um, per month per home on the pull away ones, you're going to end up having someone move out or get evicted and they're going to throw their couch right next to it or someone from out of the community come in and throw a bunch of stuff next to it. And then you're going to have to pay someone to come in and pull the trash away. And although on paper, you're like, great, I'm spending 10 to 15 bucks a month. If you remove those and do the individual cans in front of all the homes for say 15 to 20 bucks a month, all of a sudden, you know exactly who in your community is using too much trash. And so do their neighbors. Because if you're filling up your can and some, and it's usually only one, two, three people in your community that are abusing it and people from outside of your community. People from outside of the community are not going to go to someone's house and dump a bunch of stuff in yeah. one person because they're just not going to do that. But even switching to something that seems on paper like a little bit more expensive of an option actually can save you money. So there's a ton of different ways that you can crank up value. And, and this all gets back to what I was saying earlier, by living on the property, by understanding this asset from a very, very frontline standpoint, you can find ways while you're analyzing a property to really understand and make better assumptions as to where the upside is and where you can, what levers you can actually pull, and more importantly, which ones you can't. Because I can't tell you with my podcast how many people reach out to me with, with good questions that, they, that if they didn't call me and ask me about and me explain to them, I'll give you a great, for example, I know this group, great guys, some of the wicked smart guys went to basically an Ivy League school. And they're getting into the business and they found a, a, a great, looking property on paper and the only way they're going to be able to pull it off is if they were going to be able to fill at least a hundred of 200 vacant pads within 12 to 24 months and i explained to them how difficult it is and how actually expensive it is to buy and bring in a mobile home and basically what I, I told them is, can you fill 200 lots in 10 years? Yes, absolutely. Can you do it in five? If you dump a bunch of capital into it, yes. But the way you have written your pro forma is that you need at least 100 of these filled up by year two. You are going to really struggle. And they're like, wow, we thought we could just call up Clayton Homes and Oakwood Homes and Legacy Homes and just order a bunch of these. No. I mean, we ordered, I remember for the one, the, the one with over 200 vacant pads in Atlanta, we ordered something like 20 homes and we only ended up getting 12 by month 12 new homes. Yeah. It, they were seriously backordered. So, I mean, I, I told them that story that, so in other words, you're basically getting one new one a month from one, from one manufacturer. So obviously you can try Oakwood and legacy and, and the other options too, but you need to expect stuff like that. Right. So in other words, if you weren't living on the front lines, if you were just going to hire someone to handle all of this, and you know, even if you're hiring someone with 10, 15, 20 years of experience to operate your properties, they're not doing your underwriting. You are doing your underwriting. And if you do not, if you are making assumptions that are not based in reality, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to 
make a mistake. You're going to get overly optimistic on your underwriting and make a mistake and then get burned. Or you're going to take inaction and miss a killer property mm. because you didn't understand what levers you can actually pull and what ap- upside actually is there. And you're going to miss an opportunity right in front of your face. And like Sam Klein, I was mentioning earlier going, oh, yeah, call me next time you have an opportunity like that. You are going to be one of those hundred people that drive by that property and go, no way. Man, you've provided a wealth of information. Before we wrap up here, uh, we're going to jump into the rapid fire round. We'll just go through four questions and just answer them in like 30 seconds. Are you ready? Let's go. All right. What's your favorite way to source deals? Definitely direct outreach. I love getting to know an owner, old, young, experienced or not. I love building friendships and building relationships. And that to me is is my favorite. Doing something that other people can't do or won't do and finding success that way. Yeah. By far and away my favorite. I love it. Out of curiosity, are you doing like direct mail, calling, we knocking stopped, on their door? We stopped direct mail because basically we found out that was a money pit. And the people who call you back are folks who are basically trying to circumvent brokers. So they'll keep... Most people throw the mail away. The ones that do not keep the mail along with everybody else's and then just call and say, what's your highest and best price? And so I don't want to pay 6% to a broker. I'll be my own broker. Give me your highest and best. So I, I found that's, I stopped doing it. I've only, I've sent out, I think about 5,000 mailers over the years and I've only bought one property because of it. What's your favorite market to invest in? Oh, dude, hometown, man, Charlotte. <laughs> Charlotte, yeah, yeah. Of course. I love it. Uh, what's the book that you give to others most often? If I have to pick one, it's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but that's not fair, dude. <laughs> Rich Dad, Poor Dad turned me on to real estate. Tim Ferriss, 4-Hour Workweek, opened up my eyes to mm. what I'm meant to do in my life. Uh, Never Split the Difference is an unreasonably good negotiation book. Anything by Robert Greene. 48 Laws of Power, Art of yes. Seduction, anything that man yeah. puts out is is gold. And if you, it's just for sheer entertainment, anything, my, Malcolm Gladwell, that guy, just it, he is the most interesting man in the world, like that Dos Equis commercial. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell, he can talk about anything, Blue's Clues, and you're like, this is the most fascinating thing I've ever heard. I feel like we might have the same books on our bookshelves. We probably <laughs> might, <yeah. laughs> uh, What's something that you've learned being in mobile home parks that was counterintuitive? that you think the listeners would like to know up front? Dude, beyond what I've just mentioned, I'm trying to think of something unique that I haven't already said. I hate to just regurgitate what I've already said, but man, it, do something Do something that no one else is willing to do. If you are not 1% smart or 1% hardworking or 1% anything, be 1% in the 1% of willingness to do what others aren't. And I'll reiterate that quote from earlier, you will overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in 10. Believe in yourself, have confidence in yourself. And when you're 80 years old, looking back on your life, you should look back not as going, man, I am so glad I stayed at that job or made the conservative choice. When you're 80 and you look back on life, you'll probably go, man, I am glad I had the courage to do something, to chase my dreams. And even though it failed, I am so proud of myself for refusing the hand that was dealt to me when at birth. I wanted greater than what I was given. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a blast, guys. I'm honored to, to be here. Before we wrap up here, would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of information where they can follow you and get in contact with you and see what you guys are doing at Archimedes? Absolutely. My name is Ryan Narus. That's N-A-R-U-S. And like Nancy, we are Archimedes Group. 
Good luck trying to spell it. Uh, we picked a great name with a cool concept, but is impossible to spell. It's A-R-C-H-I-M-E-D-E-S. Just Google me, Ryan Naris, N-A-R-U-S. Find me on LinkedIn. I don't care if you will never buy real estate in your life or you're the CEO of a major company I or anything in between. I want to talk to you. I don't care if you're in mobile home parks or self-storage or single-family homes. I don't care. Some of the best lessons I've learned from my life are from people who are in nothing related to mobile home parks that will never get into mobile home parks that may never even go full time in real estate. And I've learned some valuable lessons from folks that didn't even realize they were teaching me lessons. I am a son of a college professor. I It's in my blood to teach. It's in my blood to learn. I want to connect with you. I have a my own podcast is called MHP IRL, Mobile Home Parks in Real Life, where I am direct. I am to the point. My episodes are short and I just drop nuggets about my industry and about anything without any hype. It is sans hype. And the reason is because I am, I'm not selling anything. I, like I, it's, it just irks me so much when you find a great podcast that's, that ultimately all it is is confirmation bias and entertainment. And if you listen to a podcast and then don't take action, all you have done is entertain yourself. You have not actually, you, you maybe have learned something that's cool to talk about at a party or something. What I want my podcast to be, whether you're in mobile home parks or not, is something you can listen in on and go, this is some like real stuff here. So find me on my website, find me on LinkedIn. I've got videos if you like, if you're a visual person like me, I've got a blog if you like to read, I've got my podcast if you like to listen. And like I said, I don't care who you are or where you are, I would love to talk to you. So please, by all means, reach out to me. I, I would love to connect. Cool. Perfect. We'll link to all that in the show notes. Thanks again for coming on. This was fantastic. Again, honored to be here. And uh, you guys are doing some great things. And I'm uh, honored to have been a part of it. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Who Knows Real Estate. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and check out our show notes for the guest contact info, as well as ours. Be sure to look for our next episode. Thanks.